Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. We're almost done 2020, people. It's the first Monday in November. And I'm looking for my asteroid today. We have an asteroid that is set to whiz by. Hopefully it veers its trajectory and will hit us. Uh, if not, we have another one coming on November 29th. Just so every everybody who follows all of my, all of my ELE, my... <laughs> All of my ELE commentary on social media. Hoping for that ELE. So I'm looking for my asteroid today. And speaking of asteroids, there is a very cool movie out there. It is, it's not the greatest film in the world, but it's a lot of fun to watch. Asteroid Ageddon. It's on digital and on, uh, on demand. Cable on demand. Check it out if you're bored and get a chance. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, costumers, uh, composers, production designers, film editors, video editing, audio mixing, audio editing, and screenwriters. We talk to them all. And... Uh, we're going to be talking to a couple, a few today. Joining us at the midpoint of the show, we're going to have co-writers and co-directors Jeff Kerr and Ray Spivey. I hope I said that right, Ray. You can correct me when you call in. Talking about their new film, which is available digitally tomorrow, Writer's Block. Needless to say, the title alone intrigued me uh, when the publicist reached out, reached out to me the other day. And... Uh, uh, as we'll get into it with with the gentlemen when they call in to talk about this, but uh, there are some very interesting ways to resolve the issue of writer's block uh, in this film, and it's a thriller. If that gives you any ideas, uh, but before we get to Jeff and Ray, you can take a listen to my exclusive interview with Shannon Coley. Uh, talking about her first narrative feature, directorial, all joking aside. Many of you already know Shannon's work as a cinematographer, as a camera operator. Um, some of uh, she did the series First Dates Canada, The Harvest Project as a cinematographer. As a camera operator, one of my favorite Hallmark Christmas movies, Hats Off to Christmas, uh, also, DP camera operator on uh, 33 episodes of The Ma Magicians, uh, Marine 3 Homefront. But she stepped into the director's chair uh, for episodic television with The Magicians um, throughout the series with multiple TV shows, Riverdale, Van Helsing, Supergirl, Girl, and of course, one of my favorites, miniseries of the year, limited series, Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. Uh, Shannon director directed the final episode of the series, episode 12. Many of you have already heard and read uh, and or read my interview with Maggie Kiley, who also directed numerous episodes of Dirty John, Betty Broderick. 
Um, and I am just a huge fan of Shannon's work. All joking aside, she steps into narrative film. This this is her first feature director, narrative directorial. And it opens next week. It releases next week on the 13th. But the film, is, comedy, is very difficult anyway. Uh, and so she, so Shannon really shows us her mettle uh, as with this film. It stars, who does this star? Now I'm losing my notes. Raylene Harewood as Charlene, a.k.a. Charlie. She is a wannabe stand-up comedian. Brian Markinson as a comic who has seen better days and who just walked away from the limelight. And it's an interesting tale as Charlie looks to Bob, Brian's character of Bob, wanting him to mentor and guide her. And they enter into a very interesting relationship with him dispensing some advice to her. This really, while you think, the script is by James Pickering, and while you think the film is about Charlie's journey, as the film, as the story develops, this is really about Bob's journey, more so, uh, and redemption and second chances. It is, I love the film. The, com- the comedy is great. Uh, the stand-up routines, uh, the, uh, it, there is so much, so many moving parts here. Uh, the lighting, the cinematography, and of course I would expect nothing less than excellent cin- cinematography uh, with Shannon directing the film. But the performances are outstanding, and this truly is a showpiece for Brian Marcus- Markinson. Uh, as I said, the Chris Chen's cinematography, you're going to see a variety of styles uh, within the film, but all contained within this world. You're going to see, you know, bars, uh, you know, stand-up comedy clubs with the red brick walls and very distinctive lighting. Uh, a lot of really cool tools here at play, and Shannon guides them all beautifully. This really is a beautiful character study on a journey journey to loving yourself. Uh, and finding a a little laughter and humor in the meantime. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive pre-recorded interview with Shannon Coley talking about All Joking Aside. Hello, Shannon. It's Debbie. How are you? Hi, Debbie. Doing really well. How are you? I am so excited to talk to you. Such an admirer of your work as a cinematographer. And also, I fell totally in love with what you did with episode with the final episode of Dirty John Betty Broderick. Oh my God! Thank you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Oh my God! I know Ma- I, Maggie and I talked for over an hour about that series. Uh, uh, Maggie's absolutely amazing. It was so much fun working with her. For me, because I had followed the entire Betty Broderick story when it was actually happening in the courts. Wow, yeah, so you knew, yeah, you knew all the, all the details as they, yeah. And I have to say, the way you brought everything together with your direction in that final episode, what, it slayed me. It just slayed me. 
I, I got the email from Clint about all joking aside, and I saw you directed it. And like, oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. Um, here we've got something totally different. It's your first feature because you're accomplished as a director in episodics, but here's your first feature. And I have to say, Shannon, this is, it's a really beautiful character study on a journey to loving your oneself. And the character that really stands out the most, it's not so much Charlie's journey, it's Bob's journey. Yes, yeah, for him it was a story of redemption. Yes. Yes, and that just shines. It mm -hmm. shines. It's subtle. You have elegantly set this up and worked with your cinematographer, and it just it that comes through so strongly. It's you know what's going to happen with Charlie. You know that from the beginning, but yep. it's watching Bob's journey that is really the most fascinating fascinating because all we see is anger in him whereas within your first 11 minutes actually 10 minutes and 14 seconds um <laughs> on, on the time mark we already know what she wants it's like she's a clerk at a grocery store she doesn't smile customers complain about her she's miserable she volunteers with kids she and you figure out that she's had some kind of disease, undoubtedly cancer, because of the way she's photographing her skin. So we already know, mm -hmm. but it's Bob. We don't know anything about, except he's angry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very angry. And you know, Brian Markerson, who played him, was is such an amazing actor. And I worked with him. I just happened to be directing an episode of The Magicians. And he had already been cast as a recurring character. And I had such a great time working with him. You know, at first I was slightly intimidated because I thought, oh my gosh, he's got so much experience. He's been in so many things like Batman and, you know, and, um, and then working with him, he is the most generous actor. And we had a great time, and he's completely open to trying anything and very trusting of, of you know, my, it was very trusting of my direction. And it was such a great collaboration that I asked him if he'd be interested. It's almost as if this role was tailor-written for him. Mm -hmm. He's that perfect in it. But this is where this is where you really shine as a director, Shannon. Anybody who is a good cinematographer worth their weight in gold knows how to lens, how to tell a story with light and lens. How to show us, make us feel who characters are, what's beneath the surface through light and lens, which that translates, I'd say at least nine eight out of ten times into being able to story tell as a director when you have all the tools in the toolbox and you're the one with the brush strokes bringing in the music bringing in the casting bringing in the cinematography bringing in the production design you expand your parameters and you do that so beautifully here thank you number one how did this story come to you Oh, it didn't come to, um, so what happened is our producer, John Ornoy, he optioned it um, from Ink Tip. 
So he optioned the story from Inktip, and he was sitting on it for about three years. And the writer is British, James Pickering. Mm -hmm. And it was written for British characters. And John wanted to adapt it for a North American, New York um, location. And it was a lot of work. You know, we all worked together to we kind of reimagine the script with these new characters mm -hmm. and especially James Pickering and John Ornoy and um, and then when we cast Brian and Raylene um, Harewood we really wanted them to help make it their own mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to write comedy as it is and it's very difficult to write comedy for somebody else and so you know it was a lot of like discussions with the, with the cast about, you know, rewrites and what would make it um, what their character would feel. So they brought so much to the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, how did, how did you, from a directorial standpoint, once you brought Chris Oben on as your, as your cinematographer, mm -hmm. because what really gives us a sense of the club nightlife or the club mm -hmm. world are, you know, the performances at Yuck Yuck, the performances at Eddie's Comedy Club. So much of that comes down to angle, um, perspectives from the stage, from the comic on the stage into the audience, the audience up on the stage. Um, Bob, when he's off in the distance, when he's a fly on the wall at the beginning of the film and at the very end of the film. It's. I love the way you have structured all of that visually. So I'm curious how you and Chris started laying out and with your lighting designs, with your use of reds for a lot of this. That's consistent throughout. Your club lighting is, is fabulous, and you contrast that so nicely with Charlie's excuse of an apartment. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, winter exteriors, the coldness. Um, so I'm curious what, you know, how you and, and Chris broke that down and where you went with that. Um, well, it was a great, um, great working with Chris. And we, we talked a lot about, you know, the realism of it all, like keeping it gritty and, and just something that rang true for us and not having it too polished. And that it was okay, you know, if this wasn't a traditional studio feature where we wanted every every scene, every shot to be, you know, beautifully, um, you know, fluid and crafted. It, it needed to have some some grittiness and um, to really make it ring true and real. And so with the clubs, you know, the clubs that Charlie's performing at, they're they're small clubs. They're they're not fancy, and so it was keeping you know that that lighting that um, you know they're dark and they're a little dingy, and you know this is her big break, but it's you know it's nothing. It's not on a huge stage. Um, the audiences, you know, they're sometimes small, and you know they may or may not respond, and um, so it was like finding all of those. Um, angles to showcase, you know, first of all, how terrifying it is to be on stage. And, uh, you know, with the lights glaring at you, and then, you know, the audience is, you know, intimidating, um, <laughs> you can sort of make or break a set. It's, it's very, and you get that grit. 
of, of Charlie's entire world and Bob's world. I, I love the contrast and what you and Chris do when Bob goes to visit his ex-wife. And you've got the camera, it's pulled back, but you, you dutch it up so the house looks so much more imposing than it really is. But what's there is so much bigger and better and grander than this small man coming up the steps. And you really give us some great metaphor there. And this is consistent throughout the film, these little things that happen. You know, you had to step into the editing bay on this one. Not as complex editorially as I think Betty Broderick was. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Very different. <laughs> the, but with, with, the, with, the, with the tension and the back, forth, back, forth, back, back. Here, I love what you do, like around the 44-minute mark of the film, where Bob is at Charlie's apartment to fix her light switch, and she's practice repeating her material, and you do these great montages where you're you're cutting between the actual jokes or the performance piece as in the course of a day, as she's regaling, as mundane things are happening, because finding comedy in the mundane is a big it's a big thread here. But you're editing, you're using swipes, and so many people don't use swipes, and it looks so good. Oh, good, yeah. It was definitely, you know, one of those things we were pulling back from, you know, it's been done before, but it, it kind of worked for this underground comedy world, you know, to, you know, showcase every every thought, everything she learned from Bob, and now she's using it. Yeah, and the swiping works so good because... As you know, when you go from, when you just do a cut, a hard cut from one shot to the next, it kind of takes you out of that moment. But with the swipe, it's all the same moment. It's just a different perspective that happens to be seeing that moment in that moment. And it just, it's very effective. And you change up your music. Kudos to David Ramos and what he came up with for your scoring and your music. And Yes, he's fantastic. Ah, uh, uh, how did you find him? He was actually a mutual friend. Um, he was a mutual friend, and he does a lot of, um, he works in commercials a lot. So this was his first feature film. Wow. Because I, I love the score. It's never overpowering. But here again, when Charlie starts, you know, finding herself, finding her comedy groove, like around that, that midpoint, that 45-minute point, the music, we get the club drums, the rim shots, that beat. It's very, think in the 1960s, you're thinking Dean Martin. You're, you're thinking the Vegas clubs. And it just adds another element here that puts you into that comedy, that club state of mind. Yeah, no, he was absolutely amazing in helping us bring that together because I'm not the most musical person. Like, I know what I like and I don't like. Mm -hmm. So it was just great to have um, David bring, you know, so many ideas to the table. So it was, it was a fun collaboration. What did you find the most challenging aspect of helming this feature film? Because it is your first. And, yes. and feature filmmaking is a lot different than episodic television in many respects. Mm -hmm. I mean, the I, the most difficult would be realistically was the budget or lack of budget because, <laughs> you know, usually when I'm directing an episode of TV, it has a massive studio network behind it and it's a well-oiled machine and I come in and I bring, you know, 
all of my ideas and creativity to the table. But, you know, every time I say, oh, it'd be great to have this, it's like, okay, yeah, here it is. Um, so in in the feature, you know, you, you're setting it up from the ground up. You don't have, um, you know, the backing behind you, the financial backing behind you. And John Ornoy was producing it. He was also doing so many different jobs just to make all, did all of this happen, um, as were all of us. Um, it was a really, really busy time in, in Vancouver. And so everyone had options for paid work, yet the cast and crew chose to, to work on this, um, to volunteer on this. So that was absolutely amazing. It was very humbling to see so many people come together um, to help make this, short, this uh, feature. And, um, and then, yeah, you know, the, it, you don't know how things are going to work. You know, you read the script. We had worked on the script for a year back and forth, back and forth, and then you know, with, with the cast. Um, at times, they had very little time to work on certain scenes because you know we were coming up with things the day of, the day before, and I felt bad at times that Raylene, you know, it was like, oh, her big set, and then she was, you know, I was sitting there going, okay, what would you put, the, you personally, and she brought so much to the table as far as you know, being a young black woman and what, you know, things she would talk about so that it wasn't taking material from somebody else that was completely impersonal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the, you know, the schedule, it's, you know, certain things go wrong, you know, <laughs> equipment trucks don't arrive on time, you know, the, the pond is frozen, you know, just things like that. But you can't, you don't, you can't throw money at them. So you always have to be solution-based and the logistics of filming. So if something goes wrong, it's like, okay, what can we do to fix it? What can we do um, to come up with something else? And often you come up with something better. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, technically the, those are the most difficult things. You know, on a creative level, a feature film, it was it was amazing working on it, but you you don't always know if things are going to resonate, if things are going to work. You know, the ending was something that I really wanted Charlie to switch the tables on Bob. Mm-hmm. I really wanted her to give him a bit of taste of his own medicine now that they had formed this father-daughter relationship. And that was something I loved as well, is that when I first talked to Brian about the script, he said, oh, okay, and they fall in love. And I said, no, no, no. Bob and Charlie do not follow up. This is a father-daughter story. This is a father-daughter relationship, and that's why I like it. This isn't a a Hollywood cliche of the older man, the younger woman. Um, This is really his his redemption story, and he wasn't there for his own daughter, and now he has a chance to be there for her. It's my big thing. It's like when we have the scene where he's, you know, didn't your dad ever teach you how to change a light bulb? And it's like my heart stopped. And then when she says, no, it's the switch. And it's like my dad made sure to teach me all of those things. And my mind and my heart went right there to those moments. Mm-hmm. And track in the stables. And gee, when you're a little girl, who doesn't want to go with the, and play with the horses? And all yeah. of these really char- and sitting there at the park and feeding the ducks and... All of these father-daughter moments really are just so beautifully executed. And you let the moments rest, Shannon. You let us absorb them. 
You don't do a throwaway and just go on to something else. And I think that's really key in this structure is that you do that. Thank you. With the comedy, with the comedy sets, stand-up is hard, number one. And you, the people yeah. have, until they get really polished, like a Seinfeld or, or a Chris Rock or an Eddie Murphy, you know, they stumble, they falter. So I'm curious how re rehearsed were the comedy sets? Did you allow for improv during that those sets? Um, how did you work that? rehearsed as I would have liked because we were sort of rewriting on the day we were realizing things um, you know they, they say there's the, the film that's written the film that's that's shot and the film that's edited and they're all you know they can be very very different and so on the day we were finding little things and Raylene was um, adding so much Brian was adding so much and so there was a lot of improv and you know, in hindsight, I wish we, you know, had more days to really polish um, the stand-up, but there was something very raw to it because, you know, it was Raylene bringing um, so much to the table. And she is so brave. She actually went to Yuck Yucks on an open mic night, oh God. on an amateur open mic night, and she got on stage. And she asked us not to come because she was she was pretty scared as it is. Um, but she actually got on stage and performed stand up in front of a crowd of complete strangers. Oh my god! And and this was her own material that she wrote. She wasn't playing Raylene. Uh, she wasn't playing Charlie. She was playing. She was herself, Raylene Harewood, on stage the very first time. And I thought. Wow, she is so brave to do that. And she said, I just wanted to know, I just wanted to feel that fear, the adrenaline, so that I could tap into it when I was playing Charlie. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> that's going above and beyond. I know, I know. And, I, you know, according to some people who, who I know who were there, they said she did great. But it wasn't exactly an amateur night. It was all professional, just trying new material. Oh, it was an open mic night. So she was the only person who had never been on stage before. Oh, my God. But she did great, yeah. Oh, and now don't you wish your camera had been there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we got someone to secretly film it because you're not supposed to film it. And they did ask for, for, for permission, uh -huh. and they didn't film any of the audience. But, um, yeah, it was, yeah. What made, all joking aside, what made this the film for you to to be your first narrative feature directorial? Out of every project out there, what spoke to you with this one that said, Shannon, I'm the one, I'm the feature film, you're going to direct? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I met with John Ornoy and he told me about the project and I thought, I really love what John was, was doing, like putting together, you know, a feature film with a female lead, a strong female lead. And, but, and then when I read the script, I thought, I really identify with Charlie. You know, here's a young woman who keeps getting told she can't do it. And yet, you know, she almost gives up, but she doesn't. And every time she fails, every time she falls, she gets back up and brushes herself off and tries again. And for me, that was very important that Charlie continues to fight, continues to want this, that she doesn't give up. Um, and, you know, as a, as a young female cinematographer, I had so many doors slammed in my face as far as, like, 
you know, I would get all sorts of things like women can't be cinematographers, they can't see as well as men, the, the cameras are too heavy, um, you're too pretty to be in, you know, behind the camera, you know, just all sorts of things, you know, are you dating the producer to get the job? And so it was always this battle of trying to prove myself and, you know, getting these doors slammed in my face and at times I was just like, what am I doing? There's so many... There are easier things I could be doing, but this is my passion. This is my love. I want to work in film, and I want to work in film my entire life. And so there was no giving up. And so I really identified with Charlie on that aspect, that when you have a dream, you have a passion, you find a way to make it reality. And I knew, you know, I eventually wanted to go into directing, and I was directing shorts and music videos, commercials on the side, so I was always creating. Um, so that was how I, you know, I, I read the script and just loved it. And then I loved Bob's journey, you know, that it was this father-daughter story and redemption. He was able, it's never too late to become the person you would like to be. Mm -hmm. um, I just love Bob and Bob's journey. Like you, I, you that just, it just, it's beautiful to watch. It resonates, it's beautiful to watch, and like you said, it's never too late, and you can always rethink what you've screwed up. Now, do you see, will you be continuing with directing, or are you going to bounce back and forth between cinematography and directing? Do you have a game plan at this point? So, yeah, I'm only, I'm only directing full-time now. Um, I haven't been a cinematographer since I who moved into directing episodic um, about three years ago. Right. So I'm now directing full-time and absolutely loving it. Um, it. It's just really exciting. And I know, you know, I'm so fortunate the time that I'm in right now that, you know, amazing women and men have really fought to open doors um, so that, you know, I'm able to direct. And so there's been a real change lately in Hollywood. Um, you know, and everywhere that female directors are, are given these opportunities. You know, it's, I've, I'm now on my 20th episode of TV. I'm attached to other features. I was attached to direct a horror feature, um, um, really, really great script. But unfortunately, COVID has delayed everything. So once things settle down, we'll, we'll go after funding for that one again. And I'm also attached to direct another feature um, by a writer, Megan, Megan Gardner, who wrote a short film I directed um, years ago, and it went over 60 film festivals and did really well. And this feature is based on a play she wrote called Love Bomb. Mm. And it is the best play I've ever seen. It absolutely, there's eight original songs, which through the songs you learn what has happened to a young woman who's missing. And her mother is desperately looking for answers and comes to a young singer-songwriter and recognizes her daughter's songs and demands, demands to hear these songs. And it's such a good play, and the, the feature script is um, amazing, so we're working on getting funding for that. And then, yeah, episodic, I mean, I'm really hoping that um, Alexander Cunningham does a third season of Dirty John 
love to be a part of that. Ooh. I want an, I want another season of Dirty John. <laughs> I know. I know. I emailed her um, just a little while ago. She said, oh, yeah, she's working on season three. So she won't divulge what the story is, what, you know, because it'd be a true crime, she true holds crime drama. The, but, she uh, holds that so close to the vest, man, until she's ready mm-hmm. to release it. But yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, Betty Broderick ended, it's like, okay, I need more. I need more. Mm-hmm. The first season was incredible. There again, it played out in the papers, in the courts, mm-hmm. and then Broderick, and I have I have to tell you what I told Maggie with Dirty John, Betty Broderick, as good as Meredith Baxter Burney was in the version that she did decades ago, mm-hmm. it that doesn't compare to what you guys did with this. Uh, you guys just blew that two-part TV miniseries thing. You you blew it away. That was, you know, it was, it was all amazing women who, you know, without Dr. Cunningham, Jessica Rhodes, who was producing, Maggie Kiley, who was producing, directing, all female directors, and it was just, most amazing experience and then working with Amanda Pete and Christian Slater um, it was so great Amanda took so many risks and she was such yeah. a trusting actor like we would be working on things and she's like you tell me if I go too far I said absolutely I will I will I will be 100% honest with you at all times and she was just absolutely amazing your collaborative efforts in bringing that story to life mm-hmm. in this quote unquote miniseries of, of 10, 12 episodes, blew anything, anything, document anything that's been done on Betty Broderick out of the water. It was such a delicate balance of showing there was no clear good or bad. There was yeah. no clear villain, um, you know, or, or heroine. It was it was a very delicate balance of showing this woman spiraling. Yeah. No, just so well done. And to see what you did there, and to see and and know some of your camera work over the years, you know, you did camera work in one of my favorite Christmas movies, Hats Off to Christmas. I love that movie. Oh. <laughs> I love that. And of course, Marine and of course, Marine Three couldn't be as different as Night and Day. But you have yeah. this very keen storytelling eye, and you you understand how to visually tell a story so it resonates emotionally, be it. If you're designing the lighting and lending and lensing, if you're holding the camera, or if you're directing the whole shebang, um, so I just can't wait to see what you do next. But I've got to ask you before I let you go, Shannon. You know what is the gift that filmmaking gives you that keeps you going, that makes you want to do this for your whole life? There's so many things. I love. I love telling stories. I love. I love exploring characters, um, you know, figuring out what makes them tick. And, you know, and then set itself. I love being on set, working with the crew, working with the actors. And then, you know, in the editing room, when you see it all come together and you discover new things, um, I think, you know, filmmaking as a whole, I love every every aspect of it. And, you know, like, there's so many, there's so many untold stories that I would love to, you know, have a hand in telling. And, yeah, it's just, just definitely, it's a passion that, you know, I think I'll have my whole life. I can see myself doing this forever. <laughs> 
Well, may may that passionate light burn bright for you forever, Shannon. This has been so wonderful to get to talk to you this morning. So yes, wonderful. Thank you. And I can't wait to see what you do next, and I hope I get to talk to you again. Yes, that would be great. Thank you so much. It was lovely. And that was Shannon Coley talking about her feature narrative a directorial debut, all joking aside, the 13th of November. Everyone can see it uh, digitally, on demand, and I think in some theaters as well. Obviously not in Los Angeles since we still have no theaters open. Uh, unless it hits a drive-in, and I'm not sure that this one will. But uh, you can definitely check online. So, right now, we are going to switch gears from some laughter and light and move into writer's block. Ready to bring them on, Pam? And welcome, Ray. Is it Spivy or Spivey, Ray? It's Spivey. Spivey. And Jeff Kerr. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you, thank you for joining Behind the Lens this morning to talk about writer's block. Uh, oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, this is, it was a pleasure watching this film, too. I learned so many creative ways to deal with writer's block when I have it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. This is, as the tagline for the film is, you know, this is a novel way to write. Uh, it it is indeed uh, a novel way to write. Um, gentlemen, talk to me. Tell me where did this idea come from? This is something I have not seen before. This is a fresh original idea. Um, well, thanks, Deb. Uh, the, the sad part is, uh, is Ray and I, I was taking a trip a few years ago out to Archer City, Texas. Uh, which is where they filmed the last picture show. And Larry McMurtry has some old um, uh, old bookstores there, and they're kind of like warehouses. And I thought as I was wandering through there, it's all self-help. If one of these cases fell on me, nobody would find me for days. And so as we left, uh, I left the town, I started thinking, well, what if Larry McMurtry really wasn't Larry McMurtry, and he lured promising writers out there? So uh, Jeff and I got together. We started hammering out the story, and there you have it. Oh my God! As easy as that, but of course, yeah, I can, I, I, I can actually envision that. Yeah, you know, with as many books as Larry McMurtry has written, um, yeah, it makes you wonder. For some of these very prolific writers, did they really write all of them, or is it a Nancy Drew mystery story situation with a pen name of Carolyn Keene, and they've had about twenty different writers over the decades? Uh, writing all these books. Um, The characters that you create, once you get (laughs) your vivid imaginations really kicked in on this one, gentlemen. Uh, I got to (laughs) tell you. (laughs) Uh, And so much of this comes through because of the casting that you have. We have our seasoned, award-winning writer, Chester Everett McGraw, played beautifully by Mike Cassaway. Uh, he really, he digs into this character and he does not let go. Uh, and then you've got 
Craig Nye, who plays Skip Larson, the young writer who he has he's written one book and he can't write anything else that's worth a darn. Uh, and Chester wants to hand selects him to take him under his wing for a private writer's retreat. Doesn't that sound lovely? That sounds really lovely. Until you get well, of course. Until you get to Chester's ranch. The minute somebody wants to take your cell phone away and says you'll get it back at the end of whatever this is, that should be a tip-off. But when you're so hungry for that next bite of the apple, so anybody, any author out there, any writer of any kind, uh, any journalist, any critic, you know, once you, you succeed at getting something written, then you want to be able to have that same level of achievement again. You're at one book. Okay, I want to write another one that's just as good, if not better. Okay, I've written one article that's gotten acclaim. I want my next one to be better. So anybody out there that writes anything is going to be able to understand the allure that this prospect has for Skip Larson. And you really play on that. And Craig does such a beautiful job. Uh, bringing that to life. Yeah, Craig. Craig was terrific. He he was the first person we actually cast, um, and we found everybody else just by asking people that we knew who might be good for particular roles. And with Mike Gassaway, I remember that um, I called him up and, and let him know about it, and he came in to meet both of us for lunch. And we spent about thirty minutes with him, and he's just as animated in person as he is in the film. Uh-huh. <laughs> and after he left. Um, it was clear to both Ray and I that this was this was our guy. <laughs> it was an easy choice. Uh, there, I can't in having seen him in this role of Chester McGraw. I can't envision anybody else in the role. He truly makes it his own. Uh, and well, yes, he, yes, he does. And what's interesting about that is that uh, whereas with a lot of the actors, the script was pretty much you know the Bible, and they stuck with that. With Mike, the the dialogue written in the script was more of a launching point, and he brought a lot of himself into that character, and actually changed it from what Ray and I had conceived in the in the original script. Um, I think for the better, but uh, really did a great job with it. How did he change it from what you originally? I'm curious as to you know how how drastic a change it might have been, or just subtle nuances. Because he just, when he's on screen, you can't look at anybody else. No, right, you can handle that one. I think the way Jeff and I originally envisioned it was that he was going to be more sophisticated in his manners. He wouldn't curse and, and all this. And, and Mike, after we had that initial meeting with him, it was, it was such a change in the character for us. But we thought, you know, this is so going to work here. And, uh, and and I think Mike being from Oklahoma and Texas, he really brought that kind of a, a Texas feel to it, especially, you know, if you're isolated way out there in a ranch. This is probably how you know, most people in Texas or folks that live out there are going to act and, uh, um, you know, in the mannerisms and, and things like that. So Mike is just perfect. Well, I've got to ask you, there is a great there are a couple great spear chucking scenes, but particularly one. Did Mike actually throw that spear himself and get it through a triangle? <laughs> Mike did all of his own stunts. <laughs> Are you serious? Throwing. Oh my god. Yeah. 
people. Hold on, stop, Jeff. <laughs> Mike, Mike, Mike did throw the spear, but uh, we had set up the triangle, and so I think that's actually me putting the spear through the triangle. So there is a nice cut there, but but uh, I think we told Mike afterwards, uh, oh, no, no, we didn't do any cutting. That was you going <laughs> right through the triangle. <laughs> He's got great form. Um, you know, any, anybody that's watched the Olympics with a javelin throw, he's got great form when he throws it. Um, he does. He's he just a very athletic guy. Quite, he works out all the time. And, and he actually, yeah, I think, relished all the physical scenes in the movie. I did just... yeah, he, he actually was a high, a high school track star in Oklahoma as a young person. And even now, he gets commercials. I know last year he got one in New Zealand because at his age, Mike can actually surf. And so uh, they wanted him for that commercial out there. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Amazing. I personally, I'm ready to see a sequel of what happens to Chester next. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm ready for that. Um, but you've also got a couple other, the other two main characters that are here is uh, Chester's right-hand enforcer, Digger, uh, Played by Chris Warner, a man of very few words and very very heavy fist, and then Jeannie Carter Cruz plays his quote unquote housekeeper, Catalina. One of the most interesting characters you have in the film, and we're not going to divulge what happens, but Catalina is definitely not what she seems to be, and. When by the, when we get to the third act and the puzzle pieces, you keep us on tenterhooks right up to the bitter end, guys, uh, as to how this how this story plays <laughs> out. Um, well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> well, you know, mo- <laughs> most films they'll have you know they might have a nice little ease out, but here we don't get the full ramifications of the thriller aspect until. The very bitter end. Was that difficult? Was that difficult to achieve? It, it really was. We we did rights and rewrites and rewrites on Jeannie's character, and and we spent a lot of time with her on developing that character. Because I, I remember we us telling her that this was the hardest role in the film. Uh, uh, without giving away, you're, you're almost playing three characters. Yeah, and. Uh, she did so much research on the final uh, the, the evolution of that character, uh, looking at actual people that behave like that. Uh, she studied, studied, and I mean, tell you, every day on the set, as we got toward the end of that film, the other actors and cast were blown away with her performances. They were amazing. Uh, you know, the differentials that she brings within these personalities uh, that she assumes, so to speak, it's almost it's almost like watching Joanne Woodward in the Three Faces of Eve. Um, yeah, because it, yeah. there's yeah, Jeannie was a almost a pleasant surprise for us because um, she had a lot less experience than some of the others. But as Ray says, she just brought a, a ton to that role and uh, really made the best of it. Now, was it always your intent for the two of you to direct this and? as your first narrative feature directorial? Because I know that you've done a documentary before, The Last of the Moonlight uh, Towers. But a narrative a narrative takes a different bent than a documentary, as I'm sure you know. So I'm curious if it was your intention uh, to direct this when you wrote it. 
it was our intention, I'd say, to direct it. Um, Ray, correct me if I'm wrong. We didn't necessarily start out to make a feature, and that sort of evolved over time. Um, And we had to figure out finances and figure out the logistics of making a film because we had never made a feature before. But uh, the more we, you know, early on, the more we thought about it, the more it made sense to go ahead and try and do that, um, in part because we're both kind of advanced in years up in our 60s, and we don't have 30 years to to slog away making short films, so we, we decided to go for the gold. Okay, now take back that what, statement. Well, you're, not, you're not wait, advanced. Wait. You're not an advanced age. I'm in the same bracket with you. We are not old. <laughs> we are not advanced. Uh, mature. Take, mature. <laughs> mature. Okay, I like to say old, wise, and well-preserved. There you go. Yeah. Okay, but I do have to tell the story on Jeff. So oh, please do. We, we do have a partial nudity scene in the movie. Uh, yes, and, you and, 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 one of the males and Jeff and I were both a little squeamish about that kind of saying like you know maybe he the person the character should keep their underwear on that sort of thing and and it ended up that they wanted and it's just brief it's not you know anything major and uh we were talking to one of the uh, crew members about it and saying like we were a little bothered you know like you just met somebody wouldn't you be a little squeamish about that and they said no but you're feeling that way because you're old I have to tell you, I did not expect that little bit of frontal nudity uh, that we get. It's just a flash, but it, it kind of it does take you by surprise. It takes you by surprise. We gave we gave yeah we gave Craig the option there of of bailing on that particular part of the full nudity, and he said no, let's go for it. He went total method no. there. He insisted on it, remember? We were kind of like, no, don't do it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now, once the two of you decided, okay, we're going to direct this, where did you even start? Because obviously then you've got to look at your at cinematography. You've got to look at editing. You've got to mm-hmm. look at, at scoring. Um, there's so many other things that come into play. So where did the two of you, once it's like, okay, we're going to direct this. We can do this. Where <laughs> where did you begin? Well, it was uh, it was uncharted territory for us, but I, we, we discussed it a lot before starting the shoot. And then during filming, um, we were, you know, we were um, – Getting together after every every time the the assistant director yelled cut, we'd get together and kind of discuss how things went and make sure we were both happy with it before we moved on. So it was it was a fairly easy process, I thought, um, and one that really lent itself to getting the best scene possible with with two heads putting getting together and coming up with the best ideas. You know how important yeah, was, was how? It was, oh, go it, ahead, go ahead. No, but it, but it was a lot of prep before we even started, which I I, I think that's what you're getting at. That mm-hmm. We we watched so many uh, films and read books. I remember Ron Howard's uh, masterclass piece was was fantastic. Isn't that uh, isn't that a great series? It, it's it's terrific. Oh. And, and 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 again, the best piece of advice we could probably give is people need to read Judith Weston's directing actors. Uh, just wow, what a mm. you know mind blower that is. But, um, again, the, the biggest part of it, you know, too, with any indie film, as you know, is you, you really have to do everything from the budget and all this. So all this was, yeah. was things that we had had some experience with in our past careers, but putting it all together was, was the real challenge. And um, 
you know, again, we knew we were going to make mistakes, but uh, we tried to limit those as much as we could by having good uh, folks around us. Well, one of the good folks you have around you, you bring in Alex Walker, and Alex has, he's got depth of experience, a wealth of experience with short films, a couple, a couple features, but a lot of shorts. How important was it for you to ha- bring in a cinematographer like Alex, director of photography, with some experience behind him uh, in terms of guiding you with what you're looking for, with lighting, with your camera position, with your blocking, with your framing? Um, was, was that, a, how valuable was that to the two of you? It, it was critical. I, I think I'd have to say that, Ray, yeah, it was very valuable. Ray was a lot more tuned into that um, and more insistent on finding somebody like Alex. And, and it, equally important was Greg Edwards, our gaffer. Uh, Greg is a John Singer sergeant in the lighting. Uh, he's, a, he's an old country boy from East Texas, Louisiana, and, and to listen to him with his heavy East Texas drawl shouting out instructions to everybody is alone, a film in itself. It's, it's hilarious, but he knows exactly what he's doing. And, and the other thing we really locked into is Alex had worked with C.J. Roberts, uh, who does the sound, and we got very good sound off of this, uh, really quite by accident, but CJ's quite accomplished. Yeah, I have to say, your sound design, your sound is excellent. Uh, we get the differential, we don't get echoing inside. Um, we've got a nice uh, continuity between interiors and exteriors with your night sound, nothing is hollow. Um, really nicely done. On, on the sound, which can very often be overlooked in the low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget indie film world. Um, well, yeah, and, and when we started, I think the thing we both realized right up front was to have any chance of success, this thing had to really look and sound professional. Mm-hmm. And um, that became even clearer after we started shooting and then once we got into post-production. Well, something that really aid, elevates the film is your attention to detail with your production design, um, you know, keeping in character in of Chester, who is, he's a game hunter. And his trophy room is like a taxidermy <laughs> heaven for anybody into yeah. taxidermy. Where, where, how many stuffed animals did you, real stuffed taxidermied animals, did you have in there? Well, we, we lucked out on this immensely. Um, we had written a script, and, and, and I, I had known the former speaker of the Texas House, Gib Lewis, and we got we re- got reacquainted, and, and he has this amazing two, almost warehouse uh, um, structure on his property here in Central Texas, and he is a world-class game hunter. Oh, I think originally we thought we would have a big room and maybe mount a few deer heads, and that would be it. Uh, when this opportunity came, uh, it, it was absolutely stunning. Uh, and, and, and again, you know, you, you couldn't build a set like that. There's no way. Um, Mike Gassaway, who does hunt, Jeff and I don't hunt, by the way, but Mike Gassaway, do, who does hunt, I, I mean, he was like a, a 13-year-old kid in a candy store. He just, he was so euphoric all day. I was going to say, he had to be in hog heaven. He was. <laughs> he was indeed. Oh, my God. And I think there were about two types of hogs there. <laughs> That, ju- I, that, we get into that room and my eyes popped. I got to tell you, it looked so incredible. And what Alex did with the camera 
in moving it around the room without to capture, you know, Skip's gaze as he's witnessing this to really give us a lay of the land and let us feel what he's feeling. Very well done. Similarly, you go into Chester's office with his Oscars and his leather-bound books of every one of his of every one of his novels um and the precision and that's something that, that I notice is very key even within the desk drawers you follow through on the meticulous precise nature of who this character of Chester is and I loved seeing those little bits because they were so defining and you didn't have to waste any exposition uh, with dialogue to get that across. All you needed was just the camera moving uh, and showing us this. Just so well done. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to hear you say that because we did put a whole lot of effort into those kinds of things. Um, and it, 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 was re- it was very time-consuming. I made the, uh, the leather books, um, and that took quite a while. And then we didn't know this, but you cannot buy a replica of an Oscar, so Ray had to uh, sculpt that himself and paint them and, and come up with the idea. Yes, you cannot. action figures. <laughs> oh, my God. This, uh, the, what you put into this, it's all these little things. The devil is in the details when it comes to filmmaking. And were these things, as you wrote the script, so often uh, a, many screenwriters will actually put descriptive text in there between your dialogue. Did you do that with your script? Did you have, I know one one actor turned screenwriter, and he likes to put in there, there is a, in between the dialogue, there is a shrine on the wall. There is a black hat there. Underneath the black hat are recordings piled and angled appropriately so we can see the title of each one. The actual direction, descriptive nature, ex- in between two lines of dialogue, takes up a page and a half. Oh wow! So <laughs> this always fascinates. No, we didn't go to that extreme. <laughs> we had descriptive passages, but um, you know, over time, it all evolved as well as as expectation uh, met up with reality, and we we had to figure out what to work with. Well, a- another element of the film um, is your score. Um, you use scoring judiciously here. You celebrate moments of quiet and silence, um, which helps elevate the uncertainty and the potential terror that could be unfolding. Uh, and then you have score. Now, your your composer, any relation to you, Jeff? That is, I'm a proud father. Uh, that is my son, David Curry, you're referring to. And he wrote most of the background music you hear in the movie. And to prepare for that, he watched a lot of movies and a lot of thrillers and um, spent several months putting that together once we were done shooting. What would the two of you say were some of the most influential films that you watched in order to develop your visual tonal bandwidth for writer's block, in order to get a sense of what you were looking for in terms of the you know not only the tone but your camera angles in terms of the production design uh, because you you watch you obviously watched a lot of films 
So I'm curious, which ones really influenced you with writer's block? Well, I, I think one of the ones that grabbed us more recently is No Country for Old Men. Originally, we were going to go way out to West Texas to do it, but it turned out that we just had some property closer in in the Hill Country. But um, we, we wanted that feeling of you're out there in the middle of nowhere. And um, uh, so that, that was one of the main films. I think we've also been real impressed with uh, Hell or High Water recently, which oh. was uh, filmed in Mexico. Um, but but to, you know, the whole sense of that movie, you know, that there is this kind of desolation out there, even in a quasi-urban or town-type town environment. Mm-hmm. You pick you pick some good ones as influencers. I got to tell you, Hell or High Water. I just I can watch that over and over again and never tire of it. Uh, you know, it just doesn't get enough credit. Should I? I think it's one of the best movies in in decades. It's fantastic. You know that one's great. Um, you know, The Ballad of Lefty Brown is another good one, but that's a more period piece. Um, but, wow. What, what, is, what was the most difficult or challenging aspect of bringing writer's block to life as your first narrative feature? Was there any one element beyond trying to get money? Because <laughs> right. we, we all know what that's like. Problem. Um, what was the most challenging aspect, and on the flip side of that, the most gratifying aspect of this process? I, I think from the outset, one of the big challenges for us was just um, trying to figure out and understand who, who, what type of person, what type of crew uh, was essential to putting a uh, production together. And we had a lot of learning to do there and read some books and talked to a lot of people, but just figuring out what was essential and what we might be able to do without in trying to shoot something on a reasonable budget was, was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, was, it was actually laughable. We met with some, some crew folks before, or producers of that sort, those, those types of people. We, Jeff and I originally thought if we put in $10,000 each, we could do this as kind of a running gun with our Canon cameras, and, of course, that soon we certainly passed that, and then, uh, the part we won't talk a lot about was the threshold of making our wives agree that we could spend X amount of money to keep <laughs> increasing the budget. <laughs> that was that was quite a challenge. And uh, but we're, but we're both I, still I happily was, married, by the way. Oh, okay. Whew. Okay. Right. Well, it was. That, that that's a good one. You know, hopefully you guys did not mortgage your houses. I've known I've known filmmakers that have done that to very bad result. Um, <laughs> right. I, I would never, never recommend that. You know, so what would the two of you, if other filmmakers, be they young filmmakers, be they more mature filmmakers, embarking on their first feature, such as the two of you, what would you tell them is the most important thing to keep in mind as you embark on that film? I think being flexible is really important. Um, being being adaptable and being ready to change things on the fly. Right. I, I, I think that you have to go into each day. Uh, first of all, pre-plan as much as you can. That is huge. But every day you have to have the expect, expectation that almost everything will go wrong. And you can't <laughs> let that get you. I love that. I love that. Yes. That's it. 
Always be prepared. We actually had somebody tell us that there will be at least one disaster per day of shooting, and that was right on target. Yeah, I I interviewed Peter Fascinelli a few weeks ago, and Peter, you know, I said, what what have you what's the biggest lesson you learned? Have Plan A, have Plan B, have Plan <laughs> C, and then you better have D and E just in case. Uh, <laughs> because and he said same thing. Oh, there is something a disaster every day, every day, and. With these indie films, you don't have the money to go out there and just, re, you know, throw some money at something to resolve the problem. Uh, no, you, no. You have to get and, creative. And, uh, you know, we tried to plan every detail. One that we kind of overlooked or just shunted to the side as we were starting to shoot was we have one scene where there's two guys in a truck driving on a highway at night. And as we started shooting, we both realized there's no way. We, we can't go out on a highway. We don't have the equipment for that. We can't afford the equipment that would be necessary to make that safe. But there we have to credit our, our brilliant gaffer, Greg Edwards, that came up with the plan of shooting it in a barn on my property and um, you know, using all of his magic, making it look like a truck driving on a highway. It was just incredible. Yeah, that's where you get creative and you stick you know, a long, some long rods under the car and create your own gimbal. And somebody gets on either side and rocks it. Uh, yeah. Well, and, or in our little... case, we had two two guys, two young kids on the back of the truck bouncing up and down. That works. <laughs> hey, you got yeah. a truck? You got a bed in the back? That works too. And what young kids are not going to want to jump up and down in the in the bed of a truck? Come yeah. on, they, they live for that. Live for that. Oh, guys. Please tell me you're going to make another film. We are. Another, I hope so. Another narrative or back to documentary? No, well, I, I, think, I think it'll for be. For me, narrative would be the way to go. Yeah. Do you, now that you've gotten it, you have a taste of each, do you have a preference? Do you prefer narrative over docs or vice versa? I'd probably what would you say, right? Narrative. What's your choice, Ray? Narrative. And what? Uh, it just—it just was so much more uh, satisfying in a way, and uh, and I, you know, and, and I think if there is a, a call for a sequel to Writer's Block, um, you know, we already have some ideas fleshed out, which I think would uh, take the film in, in some other really exciting directions. You've got options. The way this ends, we, you definitely have options. We, we <laughs> hope so. We're seeing that. You know, and Jeff, for you, documentary or narrative? Oh, narrative feature. That was way more fun. All right. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough. This has been a joy having you on the show today. And I sincerely hope I see more from the two of you and you come back on the show. Well, we'd love to do it, Debbie. Thank you very much for having us. And everybody can see Writer's Block tomorrow. It releases digitally. That's right. On election that day. That is correct. On election day. Trust me, this will be a better diversion than going out in the streets <laughs> and getting into trouble. Um, <laughs> yes. There you go. Sit at home. Watch writer's block. You may get some of the ki- same emotions that you'll have from election day, but within the safety of your own home. Um, there you go. Oh, Jeff Ray, thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you again and to see what you bring us next. 
Well, thank well you're you very welcome. We really enjoyed it. Promote independent film. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jeff Kerr, Ray Spivey, the co-writers, co-directors of Writer's Block. That is all the time we have today. I'm going to go home and watch out for my ELE asteroid. And uh, happy Election Day to everyone tomorrow. You can check out All Joking Aside next week. Writer's Block tomorrow. Also, Come Play is out right now. Miracle on Christmas. Our first Christmas film opens tomorrow. And next week we'll also be talking about the new Kevin Costner film. All you Yellowstone fans. It opens Friday. You'll want to see it. It is fabulous. It's a different take on, on our beloved John Dutton. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.